at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. everyone and welcome to another episode of the curiosity habit and today this is a great pleasure the person that i'm going to be having a conversation with because he came to the center to cri as a research assistant then transitioned to be a medical student then decided to do a phd so it went from being like research a research assistant with me then um, being a PhD student with me, and then we became collaborators when he became a researcher. So we have known each other for a while. So I'm hoping this will be a very enjoyable conversation because it's been a while since we haven't talked to each other. So we have Dr. Tavis Apremium. Uh, he's a family doctor, and he's doing a fellow fellowship in palliative care at the University of Toronto, and also has done a PhD in medical education. Great having you with us, Tavis. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. It's been far too long. And, uh, and I'm really excited to be here. Good. And we're going to get into some stories because I think I know a little bit about your life, but maybe some pearls I have missed. So we'll see what we can <laughs> get out for the listeners. So as you know, uh, part of one of the main goals of this podcast is to get to the stories of the people behind the research. So we're going to be talking about research, but I like to start also about their people's lives. And I was wondering if you can share with us a little bit about Tavis growing up. What was Tavis curious about when he was growing up? Growing up, uh, I, I binge, binge listened to so many episodes. And for some reason, that's you asked everybody that question, but I failed to prepare for that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> growing up, so I, I grew up in um, sort of rural northern Ontario. My dad was a small town family doctor um, and we lived in the middle of, of nowhere, really. Um, and it had its, its ups and downs, but it, on the whole, we, we kind of loved it. Um, and my parents and their wisdom figured out fairly early on that they needed to harness my brother and I sort of like sled dogs and just sort of guide our energy. Um, and I think the only thing that I really did um, that was stationary and for a concerted period of time was, um, was read novels. Uh, for some reason, I always found that easier than um, reading anything else, uh, easier than working on things that bored me. Novels were um, a window into a far greater world. Uh, my parents did an incredible job of sort of bringing the world to us. Um, we had people come and live with us from Japan and from Guyana and from Nepal. And I think a big part of what they tried to show us was that while we lived in, in this place, um, the world was huge and that there was so much that was difficult to understand. Um, and novels felt like a bit of a key out of that problem. And um, I could be anywhere and 
almost be inside the mind of another person. And, and so I fell in love with novels and novelists and um, really started to become a, a voracious reader. Uh, unfortunately, residency has, has <laughs> played havoc with my novel reading. But um, now that I'm done residency, I'm excited to slowly build that, that part of me back up. Um, obviously, novels and reading became a huge part of, of what I what I do and, and who I am now. Yeah. So that's one thing I didn't know. There you have the novels I did know, but the part about your parents bringing people from other countries, what was it? Like uh, why they brought those people and more importantly, what impact did they have in you growing up? Wow. Wow. Um, that's so funny. I haven't thought about this in years. So Nagako, Sharmila, and Lucille um, came from Japan, Nepal, and Guyana. They each lived with us for three months, um, probably before I was older than nine. Um, my parents are, oh gosh, how do I describe my parents? <laughs> That's a tricky question. <laughs> yeah, they're, they, um, I think they grew up in the 60s and they grew up in urban environments and both left those environments for a more rural, um, sort of semi-back-to-the-earth uh, dream that they held, I think. And uh, sort of my, my mom was heavily involved in, um, in establishing recycling and environmental programs in our area. And I think they, I think my mom's motivation at least was to show this mantra of um, oh, act locally, think globally, which I, I don't even remember the, the ideology of that term, but it was very popular in the 60s. Okay. And um, they brought these wonderful people who were kind uh, and brave enough to move to the wilderness in northern Ontario from somewhere very, very different and taught us about their, how they ate and how they um, lived. And I still remember Nagako never needing an alarm clock that she, whatever time she decided she would wake up, she would wake up at that time, which was inconceivable to me. Wow. Um, and they would play soccer and swim with us and um, they're just very kind. And I, I think, you know, that sort of played out in how my parents tried to encourage us to do the same. Um, I lived in France for three months when I was 13 and my parents sort of sent us off on adventures, um, hoping that we would learn something and have fun uh, in, in areas that I think they felt they, they couldn't give living where we lived. They hadn't intended to stay there. My, my mom had a really terrible car accident when she was pregnant with me and they had been planning to, to move out of, you know, their sort of their home um, and, and build their family and settle down elsewhere. But that's not the way it worked out. So I think they, they pivoted and took a different direction. Um, I, I'm grateful for it. Uh, and um, I think it changed who I was for sure. Great, oh, great story. 
And go, going back to your passion for novels, no surprise that you had a several degrees in, in the humanities, right? I believe you have a couple of masters or something. And then you decided to become a physician. Like, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Like, how did you end up coming to medical education, becoming a physician, doing a PhD? Like a truly skilled interviewer, Syra, you always manage to, uh, in a very non-threatening way, point out the areas of friction. <laughs> <laughs> and and the reality is that uh, I I decided long before I got those humanities degrees to become a physician, but I failed over and over again. <laughs> um, I started out. I didn't start out in university. Actually, I started out trying to become a. a national level cross-country skier after high school and um only after my first i mean i i had been a very dedicated athlete during high school um and not a very dedicated student quite frankly <laughs> um but only after a year of training full-time did i realize that cross-country skiing is norwegian and not armenian for a very good reason um <laughs> That's not a strong genetic makeup for cross-country skiing. And so I left and went to the only university that gave me a, a, a spot, which is um, Carleton's English department. Um, and I uh, threw, oh gosh, it, my, some of my professors who, who were, you know, have sort of become friends in the years since would tell you that it was through a lot of, probably of heartache that I um, became a, a diligent English scholar, but, but also managed to find ways to, to study in, in the sciences. Um, and, I, and I double majored. And then I started applying to medical school, but um, you know, getting into medical school in Ontario was one of the hardest places in the world. Um, just by virtue of the nature of applicants to spots. And so while I was applying and trying to figure out who I was, I, I could not step away. I think that's the right answer. I couldn't step away from the humanities because the people I met um, were fascinating and taught me so much and, and really, I think, put into context all of the learning and questions and struggles I had come across in, in learning about different parts of the world and learning about um, our history as a as a industrial species, um, and all of the different ways that people have suffered and thrived because of that, and that's what English scholars and, and literary theorists do. They put all of that into this really rich tapestry that um, that I just craved to keep weaving, um, and so. I did a master's of, of literature at, at Carleton and um, learned a lot about um, the philosophy of science and feminist theory and critical race theory and um, sort of built a foundation that um, I think you and Lorelai helped bring out in, in a way that, well, I didn't, I didn't know that I would ever be able to apply, um, which was really, really gratifying. And then after that English master's, I, I did a um, a professor at Carleton actually um, 
told me about the program at Columbia, which was just starting up, and I applied and <laughs> and flew to New York and interviewed uh, in this city that uh, just blew me away. Um, that such an accomplishment could be possible, an accomplishment like New York. It was incredible. And, and, and the program was the same. So I was in the first class in the narrative medicine master's program. And, and through that, um, I will, I will edit out a, a few more years of failure in between, but <laughs> I ended up in, in London and, um, and you guys were so welcoming and gave me an opportunity to take those lessons and apply them to medicine and medical education in a way that honestly um, spilled my wildest dreams, I guess. I, I didn't think it would be possible. Um, and, then it, and then it all came together in this really magical way. So then the story goes that the way that you were able to get into medical school was by taking a very difficult route, which is <laughs> doing an MD-PhD. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah. what was something um, that you didn't anticipate in that journey that became really significant in your life? I imagine there were many moments, but is there there one is there one that is, is Yeah, I mean there? if you had told me in 2008 when I graduated from my English masters, English English undergraduate degree with an interest in, you know, in um, gender theory primarily and in um, immunology and oncology on the sciences side that I would uh, do a PhD in the operating room in what I considered to be like the most mechanical, the most formulaic, the least humanist part of <laughs> medicine, I, I would have, I don't know, rolled my eyes and, um, and, and called you a liar, probably. Um, and, but this is the way so much of life works out is that um, meeting one person can change everything. And, um, you know, even more why um, the way you talked about the operating room and the way you pose the problems of the operating room as human problems um, really made me fascinated by them. And then I showed up in the OR because you told me where and when to get scrubs and how to show up and what ungodly hour to be there. And I did. And after that, I was, I was pretty hooked. I mean, it didn't last. Thank God. I like I thought about a career in surgery. Oh yeah, for a long time. <laughs> for a long time, <laughs> a long, long time. Um, only to realize that uh, you know my long and meandering course would put me into the job market at, in my mid fifties. No, not that's an exaggeration, <laughs> but um, that I that there were other ways to get to those human problems, um, but. Um, yeah, it, it, I still, I sometimes, well, actually in preparation for this interview, frankly, picked up my thesis oh, wow. <laughs> and, and looked, uh, looked just even just looking at the title sort of still surprises me. Yeah. yeah. Ethnography is a weird thing. Oh, for sure. 
Uh, it's interesting that you look at your PhD, at your PhD thesis. This is not a PhD exam, hopefully. But <laughs> Maybe that's how I was thinking about it. Yeah, no, I hope not. Uh, but anyways, so you did your PhD basically in two and a half years, which just mm. blows my mind every time I think about it. You published like four papers in two years and a half. Mm-hmm. It took like six years and published none. So that was, wow, quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Like, uh, what is the memory of you? Like, because you had to structure your MD path and your PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about that structuring of your time and what key memories you have about it? Mm-hmm. That's funny. I didn't expect to think about that. Um, I did do the PhD very quickly. Yeah. Um, perhaps you took six years, six years uh, and didn't publish any because you didn't have quite the same, you didn't have you as a mentor. Maybe that's part of it. Oh, wow, you're nice. <laughs> <laughs> I had some very strategic advice um, and, and a lot of um, warning about how to make sure each step of the work um, becomes a useful product. Um, so, you know, I was able to use my comprehensive exams for publication and all of the four empirical papers um, became publishable. Not because I was immediately a skilled and gifted grounded theorist, but because I had, you know, you had just, you know, in the past five years started, learned how to become a grounded theorist in your own right. Mm -hmm. And you, you could like sort of lay out for me how you, you know, what, what I, I, one of the things I remember is, you know, either you or Lorelai handing me um, Kathy Charmaz's book and being like, <laughs> that's grounded theory, <laughs> buckle up and I'll see you at the end of the weekend. And I remember lying in the, on the couches in the Siri office. Um, there were a lot more couches and fewer offices, uh, you know, late into the night and early into the morning uh-huh. reading that book and trying to make sense of it and and how to do it and how to take the skills from literary theory to grounded to grounded theory into to social sociological study um yeah that was a, that's a memory that lays out to me many long hours spent in an empty series <laughs> um and and pretty lonely frankly a, a phd is a very lonely time um, and, and part of the reason it was so fast is I, um, it was, it started as a means to an end. Um, it started as a means to, to make it to medicine mm-hmm. and became something so different. Um, and I sank into it m- more than anything I've ever, um, sunken into sank into more than anything else and um the the it consumed it consumed all of me mm-hmm. and i can totally attest to that like i will arrive early in the morning and you will sit there and the amount of dedication that you put into this phd was really amazing and it, it was great to see you said mm, something about you. You were pairing the grounded theory. Yeah, sure. You and I both learned grounded theory almost at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pairing that with your writing and kind of literature, humanistic background. Mm-hmm. And you did really unique pieces in your, in your papers, 
was it intentional mm. that you wanted to show the world that you it was possible to merge those two worlds or ah you're a theory researcher asking me about writing how surprising <laughs> i um i think i'm really grateful in retrospect that uh you guys allowed me the latitude to to do some of that you know i started out as an ra on um studies around adaptive expertise and uncertainty and learned how you did grounded theory and in uh and i think meredith was a postdoc at the same time and meredith vanstone and i was learning how she did grounded theory just by being associated and by listening and then um it, writing was the way i i i lived in in the theory world i i think the first thing i was ever paid to do that that wasn't like uh provincial park maintenance or taking care of kids was writing the biographies of siri researchers yeah. and i remember getting lorelei's first edits back on those and being like oh this <laughs> is going to be this is going to be an adventure because i had i had i had been submitting my writing to um scholars of all different kinds for five, 10 years, you know, um, philosophers of science, um, uh, literary theorists, um, physicians, um, narratologists, and the, the genres of feedback that you, I got back, uh, I was continually having to revise how I, how I relayed my thoughts in, in a way that seemed interpretable um by the person i was writing to and i've always thought i thought of academic writing as writing to a person or a small group of persons and um i definitely recall a moment in that shared office at siri as a research associate no i guess i would have been a phd student by that time where um I was trying to write like you would write or like Lorelai would write. And it wasn't working very well. Um, and then I started to memo or, you know, take um, study notes the way I would as if I, the interviews were an, a novel mm. um, where the voice of the researcher, the researcher as the tool is interwoven with the words of, of the with the data with the words of the participants with their stories um and to put them together in in um something that seems less uh like quotes in boxes and more like a quilt mm -hmm. um and i remember that as, as being um an important moment of transition for me and also the writing of of narratives as data, as, as results. Um, and um, I'm working on another paper now that's gonna try and take that a step further, which I'm pretty excited about. Oh, that's cool. I look forward yeah. to that. Yeah. Let's pick it up on that because I wanna now tr to transition into your interest initially to become a surgeon. Mm. Then it moved like 180 degrees to become a palliative care specialist now. Uh -huh. How have your research interests changed so far, given your change in specialties or interests and passions and where are you working on now? Hmm. 
so you painted it as a rainbow. I think of it actually as like a, a complete sphere. Okay. <laughs> so I was, um, I remember driving back from my parents from New York, reading, um, oh my goodness, what was that book? Possibly A Mind of One's Own. Uh, no, um, hmm, I don't remember. Uh, but a book about psychiatry and the complexity and the ambiguity of psychiatric diagnosis and and feeling in that moment like oh this is actually what the version of medicine that i was born to do and then of course falling in love with the or complicated all of that and um what happened uh was that i started to see what happens after surgery the OR is beautiful and becoming a physician was my own personal Olympics. You know, I did not become the athlete I thought I might. And the effort to get into medical school was uh, over the top. Mm -hmm. um, and surgery sort of became this new goal, but I started to see what happens to patients with advanced cancer who have surgery mm. and i given where i came from and what i had read and the schools of thought i belonged to i struggled to affiliate myself to the realities of the post-surgical world and how often those patients die soon after how how painful um, mm. recovery can be and and often and unfortunately how sometimes those surgeries happen under without complete understanding on the behalf of very sick people mm. um, and so i um the things I started to read in that time were around surgical outcomes for the very ill and, um, and around what full disclosure looks like. And all of those things were written by palliative care physicians. Mm. And, um, and I, I continue to be amazed and um, entranced by the, power of surgery and the dedication of, of surgeons and the resilience of surgical residents. But it, it, um, I've always been a person who failed to see the trees for the forest and the forest in this situation was the fact that we were dealing very often with, with, with people whose problem in front of us, a tumor, for instance, mm -hmm. could be fixed, but that the, the severity of their illness could not be. And um, I felt pretty called to palliative care as a way to resolve that moral distress. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. It's a very personal also transition for you, I can tell. Yeah. So what is it now that you're doing? What is, what is, what sparks your curiosity now that you are in the world of palliative care and how you reconcile that with uh, medical education? Mm. So um, 
Oh, when when um, I wrote thresholds of principle and preference, I was like, this is it, this is it. you know, we, <laughs> this is the end, I've, I've done it. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, it's been cited like 30 times in five years, and like, it's sort of very much under the radar. Um, but I do think as a theory, uh, it has lots of lots more potential. And um, I'm excited by the idea of taking a theory that uh, I think has stayed pretty local to surgery uh, and even so, like a small group of surgical researchers and expanding the ideas behind it, which I think are quite universal to medical education into um, our ideas of entrustment and our ideas of assessment in non-procedural settings. So. I think in many ways in, in, in medical education, we, we, just as we do when it comes to very ill patients, miss the forest um, for, the, for the trees. And we focus in on assessing, like um, we miss competence to assess for excellence. And what we each interpret as excellence is like test scores and um, the ability of learners to memorize what I as their assessor thinks is important. And um, palliative care is a, is a fascinating opportunity to study EPAs in a, in a non-procedural um, specialty. It, it is a, a specialty that um, espouses some of the things about um, constructivist approaches to assessment that, uh, you know, are, are very important, that um, it's a it's like most of medicine, trust-based, trust between uh, physician and patient and trust between supervisor and, and, and surgical and, and, um, and learner. And so it's a perfect, it's a perfect um, way to perhaps consider how to quantify that trust, how to quantify it in low stakes settings and, and help guide learning using assessment. Um, and, and I'm also interested in, um, I think you probably know as well as I do that I have like this, I have difficulty with authority. In all of its, in all of its various forms. And um, I think that uh, when, I want what I want to do as a researcher is is look as closely as possible at things we believe to be true um, that lead people to suffer um, without knowing whether or not they are true and and even what that truth might mean. So right now that what that means for me is I'm I'm interested in looking at how different um, specialties construct what pain is and, and how pain should or shouldn't be treated, how, what a patient in pain looks like and um, how that's informed by all of the things that we often fail to, to see at, at the outset um, by um, you know, different kinds of authority within our specialty, our constructions of gender, our constructions of ability and race. I think those questions um, are ones that, you know, the, the assessment sort of uh, 
um, the assessment side sort of moves my career along and in, and in, in a way is, is where the rubber meets the road in terms of the practical outcomes of, of the sociocultural study I'm interested in. And then these questions of moral distress are the ones that grab me deep down and, um, and won't let go. Well, looking forward to hear about it. I hope there will be papers coming up soon. So mm -hmm. I need to wrap up. We could keep talking for hours, but I have two questions that I need to ask you that are not research related. Okay. The first question is, I know you love reading, but what other activities do you enjoy doing outside your research that keeps you, that keeps you going, that keeps you motivated? Oh, activities. Um, I love the idea of canoe tripping oh, <laughs> and what that means is i grew up as a canoe tripper i led canoe trips uh, as, a, as a young person um my parents canoe trip uh we i took my my daughter uh, sorry my my um my wife on a on a canoe trip with my parents uh that was like a very introductory and i've been hoping to take my my young daughter uh what canoe tripping looks like now for me as a increasingly soft uh, city boy <laughs> is nothing like the way it used to look but i really i really look forward to um getting some authority over my own schedule which is not the experience mm -hmm. of a resident um and and maybe uh maybe getting back into canoe tripping in a more meaningful way Oh, cool. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. My experience canoeing is not good, so leave it there. <laughs> not not a ton of canoes in the mountains of Colombia? No, I tried it here in the Arrowa uh -huh. River. I almost drowned, and that was not good. <laughs> That's you, I, was wearing, I was wearing a vest, but I thought I was drowning when I was not. But that tells you how scared <laughs> I am. Anyway, that so final question to you. Let's, let's take a, a trip back your mm. years when you were trying to figure out what you were wanted to do let's say you if you hadn't been interested in the humanities if you hadn't that goal of becoming a physician what do you think you would be doing now did you have a plan b oh i mean i still have a plan a oh, <laughs> i'm living plan b <laughs> i am i am constantly living out plan b c d e f um <laughs> My plan A was to become a world famous novelist. Oh, it turns out that is very, very difficult. Uh, it, it, and uh, the subcategories of A, like A1, A2, AB, would be to become a novelist of any kind, which oh. also extremely difficult. And then uh, to, to, just, to be, just be a writer um, of who knows what. Uh, and the third scenario, posed too many challenges in terms of stability and um, predictability, which I really need. And um, whether or not I can write a story that I like and is worth sharing uh, is to be decided, I guess. Huh. Fascinating. You see, I didn't know another thing about you. That's great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tavis. This was really enjoyable. As usual, sharing with you is, is a pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to be with us today. Oh, thanks for your grace as an interviewer, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.
This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.